So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Come and See Inspirations. And this, the 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time, it's the 12th of September. My name is John Keeley, and help me to present the programme again this morning. Shane Ambrose, good morning to you, Shane. Good morning, John. How are we keeping? Good. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for, for joining me, Shane. And I know you'll join with me in welcoming those listeners who are around maybe the West Limerick area, around Ireland, maybe around the world. Who might be listening to us and maybe in some way struggling or housebound or, or lonely today. We hope we'll bring you something that might bring cheer to an inspiration maybe uh, to your hearts today. Our programme uh, includes uh, interviews and chat with on faith topics, inspirational music, reflecting on the Sunday Gospel. And of course, all of our programmes can be heard uh, on our Come and See Inspirations.buzzsprout.com. That's our podcast platform. That's Come and See Inspirations.buzzsprout.com. Prosper.com, just Google Come and See Inspirations and you get us there. All of our historical programs are, are available to be heard back on our blog, which is sacredspace102.blogspot.com. Also, our programs, our current programs can be heard on Spotify and iTunes and on Facebook by just searching on Facebook, Come and See Inspirations. You can contact us, and please do, by texting us on 87 6088667 that's 0876680867 or email so the year has moved along quite quickly in some respects. So uh, liturgically, there's a few around this week. Um, not too many heavy hitters, it has to be said, but uh, a few a few interesting ones. So um, Monday the 13th of September is the feast day of St. John Chrysostom. Now, John is one of those, he was a bishop, in Cappadocia, in which is modern-day Turkey. And he was a very famous bishop, actually, and he's also one of those theologians who's called a doctor of the church, which means his writings are still held up as uh, good, you know, proper, or not proper, but strong teachings for the faith right down to the present day. Now, this guy died in 407 AD, right? He's regarded as one of the four great Greek doctors of the church, and his name Chrysostom means golden mouthed because he was renowned for his preaching abilities. He was uh, the Archbishop of Constantinople, which is now modern day Istanbul, and he incurred much opposition and unfortunately he died in exile. And he is the patron saint, he's one of the patron saints of preachers. So that's John Chrysostom on Monday. Tuesday is an interesting one. It's the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. Now, this is it's this is kind of one of those feast days which is linked with Holy Week, and it reflects on the cross, the instrument of our salvation, but also, of course, the instrument of the passion. And it is the feast is linked to what is called the discovery of the true cross in 320 AD by St. Helena, who was the mother of Emperor Constantine. And it's, um, so the, 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 the true cross was dated, or was said to have been found on the 14th of September. And the 13th of September 
is the feast day of the dedication of the Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. So that's the day that that was first consecrated as such. So um, now the tradition, of course, is that St. Helena, when they were excavating the sites, because the sites at the time in the Holy Land, they weren't as we know them now with proper churches and all the rest of it. And she went there and during the excavations, they found the tradition holds that they found timbers potentially off of the three crosses. And to identify which one was the cross of Christ, there was a person laid in it to, um, to cure them. And the annual commemoration of the event has been celebrated since 320 AD. And um, it's, it's an interesting one. It's linked with Good Friday in terms of the, the like Corpus Christi is linked with Holy Thursday. Exaltation of the Cross is linked with Good Friday. And obviously it's a particular feast for the church in Jerusalem. So in particular, we think of the Christians in the Holy Land on Tuesday. And particularly, I would say to people, um, you know, Aid to the Church in Need is one particular organization that works with the church in the Holy Land. Um, you should also, if you ever get an opportunity to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, you should take it to support the Christians that are living there because the numbers have declined drastically over the last number of years. Then, um, and also just to mention, of course, the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, it's the Patronal Feast Day of the Dominicans in Ireland. So it's their big feast day, and it's during the day that um, men entering the order will take vows or be clothed in the habit or make final profession. So we wish the Dominicans a happy feast day. Wednesday the 15th is the feast day of Our Lady of Sorrows. It is always the day after the exaltation of the Holy of the Cross. And obviously it focuses very much on Mary's sorrows as the mother of Christ. And that in particular, that tradition of um, uh, the, the sorrows of, of, of Mary. Now, so it's uh, that's on the, the 15th of September. So uh, sometimes known as the, the, the Mater de la Rosa or the Mother of Sorrows or Our Lady of the Seven Dolores or Our Lady of the Seven Sorrows. So the sorrows that are, are the sorrows that Mary suffered um, are, and sometimes actually you might see particularly older paintings or pictures. It would show the Virgin with um, her heart exposed and maybe seven daggers, I think is the term that would be, you know, coming out representing the seven sorrows. The seven sorrows of Mary are during the prophecy of Simeon. Um, you know, that a sword would be, that a, he would be destined for the rise and fall of many and a sword would pierce your own soul. The flight into Egypt, the loss of the child Jesus for three days in the temple when he was 12. The meeting of Jesus and Mary along the way of the cross, um, which of course is one of the, I think it's the fourth, fourth or the fifth station of the cross. The crucifixion, obviously enough, when Mary stands at the foot of the cross. And then the descent from the cross when Mary receives the body of Jesus and then the burial of Jesus. So they are seen as the seven, the seven sorrows, the seven sorrows of Mary. And it's an interesting one. It's also, there's also the seven um, joys of Mary, but we obviously in particular on this day, we remember the seven sorrows. So that's the 15th of September, which is Wednesday next week. Thursday the 16th is the feast day of St. Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is a Pope, sorry, it's Cornelius and Cyprian. So Cornelius was a Pope, Cyprian was a Bishop, both of them are martyrs. Cornelius became Pope in 251 and he died in exile in 253. And he's a patron saint for cattle and domestic animals. 
Cyprian was the Bishop of Carthage, he was a, which is in Northern Africa. He was a teacher, a preacher, and he also was martyred. And he died in 258 AD. Friday the 17th is the feast day of St. Robert Bellamine. A Jesuit, Cardinal Bishop of Capua, involved in theological controversies of the time, hugely involved with Council of Trent, involved with the Inquisition, was involved with the trial of Galileo, um, wrote a catechism. He's another doctor of the church. And he is the patron of catechists. So that's Robert Bellamine on the, and he died in 1651. And his feast day is the 17th, which is next Friday. Finally, then, Saturday the 18th is the feast day of St. Joseph of Cupertino. So interesting one, Joseph of Cupertino, for those that might be familiar, is the patron saint of students sitting exams. And I know myself, when I was sitting my own junior and leaving certificate a long, long time ago, uh, this was the man that we were told to have a word with and to pray. He was, he's Italian. Um, so he was born in near Brindisi, which is in Naples. And he died in 1663. And he, his father was a carpenter who died before he was born. And the family was driven from their home when he was born in a stable. Um, he started having visions at the age of eight, um, but he had quite a hot temper. He was apprenticed to a shoemaker, and then he applied to join the conventionals of the Franciscans, uh, but was refused due to his lack of education. So this is where the whole thing about students comes in. He applied to the Capuchins, who accepted him as a lay brother in 1620, and then eventually he was accepted as an oblate at a Franciscan convent near Cupertino in Italy. Um, and he became a cleric at 22, a priest at 25, could barely read or write, uh, but had a great spiritual knowledge and the gift of discernment. Um, one of the things about him is, could you imagine sitting in the choir with this guy while you were saying your prayers, he tended to levitate. It'd be a small bit distracting, you know? Yes, a uh, just a small bit like. So uh, so he was he was this was he was he was allowed he wasn't allowed to attend choir, go to common refectory, walk in procession or say mass in the church to avoid making a spectacle. Um, so it was an interesting one. So he, he, he was interrogated by the Inquisition um, and for many years was sent from one Franciscan Catholic house to Capuchin, Capuchin house to another. Uh, but he retained, what said it was, he retained his joyous spirit submitting to divine providence. So that's Joseph of Cupertino who died, or whose feast day we celebrate rather on the 18th of September. And as I said, he's the patron saint of students, also of pilots, Travelers, air travelers, paratroopers. Obviously, enough you can see what the linkage there is. If man was due to prosecution, yes. so that's what we have, John, in terms of liturgical odds and ends this week. Shane, thanks for that. Um, you know, it, it, when you be going through these saints, it, it fascinates me. Um, say, for instance, going back to the four oh seven with Saint John Chrysostom. The yeah. right, the writings of these guys uh, seem to um, uh, seem to be with us all those years. It fascinates me how yeah. the. I'm not saying yeah. that, but it's fascinating. yeah. So that's and that's why they're that's kind of why they're you know they're doctors of the church. Their writings, John's John's homilies and and writings have come down to us to the present day. They're available, you know, if anyone you could Google it online and you'd find the homilies of John Chrysostom, um, you know, and they're 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 now they're not. How will I put it? It's a bit like if you picked up the Confessions of St. Augustine or yes. writings like that. They're not 
the easiest things to read through. You, you know, they're, they're not something you're going to speed read. They'll be things that you will have to, to take your time, um, you know, going through. But, you know, but, but, the, but the whole point is like, I mean, 1600 years, that's no long time. But anyway, Shane, thanks a lot for sharing those, for sharing those things for the society, some information there, um, which we don't maybe ponder during the week uh, as we go through the various days of the week. I like the way also, I must say, it's been, uh, I've forgotten completely really about um, uh, what the seven sorrows of Mary were and going through those again. Very good to remind me. Thank you for that. Okay, now, just before we go for our first bit of music this morning, we have a spiritual communion prayer. And this is for those, obviously, who can't get to Mass and can't receive Jesus sacramentally. My Jesus, I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot now receive you sacramentally, come spiritually into my soul. I embrace you as being already there. I unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Now we go for our first bit of music this morning. And I thought because uh, because the feast of our lady, uh, our lady's birthday was actually there last week and on the eighth uh, last Wednesday, a nice bit of music, an uh, instrumental piece of music um, by Melinda Dimitrescu entitled Ave Maria. So come back and join us in part two, where I think Shane's got a few bits and pieces they're going to share with us. But come back and join us and let's listen to what Shane has to share with us.
So welcome back again to the second part of Commonsea Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane. We're wondering what to do today because there was a number of things um, that we spoke about off and on uh, over the last few weeks. And we said maybe we might just do a program to highlight some of the things that might be happening within the church in the week that we chose to do this program. So this particular week, there's a few issues that we might, or points, uh, points that we might just bring to listeners' attention. So Shane, you might kick us off with where you'd like to start. Yeah, so I'm actually going to start with something which is particularly Irish. Um, now, we're going to go around the world a small bit, but there is something which I kind of want to bring up to people's attention, and I think it's very important that people are aware of it. We have a very strong tradition in Ireland of mass cards and mass intentions, particularly for funerals. And now there's, there's a whole other debate and discussion to be had around that particular tradition and where it comes from, but it is a particularly Irish phenomenon, actually. Um, I, I, I've had this conversation with people from other countries and they, they've make, made the point that it's a particularly Irish phenomenon of mass cards and, and mass intentions. And people I remember a couple of years ago, there was a whole thing about who could sign mass cards and whether or not mass cards could be, or pre-signed mass cards could be sold in shops. I came across an article recently on the Pray Tell blog, which is by Father Neil Xavier of Dunahuna. He's a man that he sometimes writes for the, the notebook at the back, the Irish Catholic. And he's also a contributor to this blog. And he made the point about, there's a, raised a concern about pre-signed sympathy cards. Now, so people might remember there a couple of years ago as well, after the Charities Act was passed, there was a High Court challenge taken by um, a McNally man from up the country. And he went all the way to the High Court. And he contested that the, the law conferred a monopoly on the sale of mass cards to clerics of the Catholic Church. Now, it turned out that this gentleman, one of the reasons he took the court case was he was one of the major dealers in pre-signed mass cards. He was selling up to 120,000 them a year. And he had an arrangement with a priest in the Caribbean, or in the West Indies, rather, where he paid him 3,600 annually for the collective masses a month. So that gentleman, he lost his court, he lost his court case and the, the high court upheld the law that basically signed mass cards cannot be, pre-signed mass cards cannot be sold in shops. Now, the interesting point that this blog post made was at the moment if you go into shops around the country and to post offices and so on you will see what are called pre-signed sympathy cards on sale here and it's important to draw people's attention to the fact that they are not mass cards okay they're not mass cards um, you know, but for many people, and particularly, you know, even people of very good intent that would be doing their best, it's just to draw their attention to it. It's basically, the card says, the intention of the happy repose of the soul of whoever will be remembered in the prayers of ex-Catholic priest. Now, that's not massacred. That's like me or John or somebody else saying, we'll remember somebody in our prayers, you know? Um, it's not the same thing. And I just wanted to draw people's attention to it. Um, you know, it's it's just it, because a lot of people might think it is a mass card. It's not. It's a signed sympathy card. There is a difference and people should be aware of it. 
And I know myself recently, our, our own family, like we had a recent bereavement and we got, as, as tradition, we got lots and lots of mass cards and we got quite a number of these, what were pre-signed sympathy cards. And I know we, we mentioned it to one woman in particular and she was absolutely shocked when she realized it wasn't the mass card. It wasn't a mass card and because that's what she had thought she was getting. And she was quite upset about it, actually. Um, so just to draw people's attention to it, if you're buying pre-signed cards in a shop, in a post office, they are not mass cards. They are whatever you want to call them. They're a sympathy card, but they are not mass cards. So just to draw people's attention to that. Now, the next thing I want to draw people's attention to, uh, just as we go through, is that this weekend, the International Eucharistic Congress is being held in Hungary. And all going to plan, Pope Francis should actually be attending on the Sunday. Uh, so it's it's an interesting one. The, it's the 52nd International Eucharistic Congress. It's been held in Budapest from the 5th to the 12th of September. So people remember we had the 2012 one in Dublin. And it's, it's so it went ahead. Obviously, it was delayed for a year because of COVID. So it was it was supposed to be IEC 2020. Um, but it's just it's an interesting one. Just um, if people wanted to check in and, and see what was going on. Um, obviously, uh, there's 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 a couple of things in terms of you know, the Pope's participation, particularly given the political situation in Hungary with their with their president. Um, one thing, though, that jumped out at me and I thought was an interesting article is their Metropolitan Hilarium. Now, this guy, he was, I remember listening to this guy in Dublin during the Dublin Eucharistic Congress in 2012. Now, who is this guy? He is a bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church, okay? And he's, 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 he's high up. He's the equivalent, how do I put it to you guys? It's, he's the equivalent of their Minister for Foreign Affairs and dealing with um, external dealing with states and dealing with other churches so he's, he's 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 an important guy and obviously you know very much high up in in the hierarchy but he gave a lovely talk actually about how catholics and the eastern orthodox are united in belief in christ's real presence um and he this was the opening catechesis at the congress in in budapest on september the 6th and during the catechesis, he outlined the Eastern Orthodox understanding of the Eucharist. And while he says the Catholics and Orthodox are not united in the Eucharist, but they are united in the conviction that in the Eucharistic bread and wine, after their consecration, we have not just the symbolic presence of Christ, but his full and real presence. And it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting talk. It's an interesting reflection. And I would definitely be encouraging people to have a look at it. Um, obviously, we'll keep an eye out as well to see what Pope Francis is going to do during his trip to, um, to Budapest today. And of course, then he is going on further then in terms of he's going visiting uh, Slovakia. And he is also going to visit uh, the Czech Republic in the following few days as well. Very much a flying visit. I think it's like it's a, like his his trip to his trip to Budapest is like literally that day, mm. um, you know. So there's 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 there is the whole lot happening. You know, he's, he's literally going in for the closing mass, and that's pretty much it. Um, and then he's he's going on to to visit 
uh, the, the Czech Republic and to Slovakia. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's an interesting one because the Czech Republic and Slovakia, or the Czech Republic in particular, is a country which has a very low participation rate in any form of religion. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's Christianity or otherwise. And it is a consequence of um, many years of communist rule in the country. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting what the Pope is going to visit. Um, there's also it's there's there's unfortunately there are divisions within the Christian churches in the Czech Republic, uh, going back to the Middle Ages and the, the Protestant Reformation and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, so it'll be an interesting one to see what happens in terms of his trip uh, next week. Shane, just before you move off that subject, now um, it was certain news for me that um, that the the Russian. Orthodox Church, is that who you mentioned, are as yeah. close as the Catholic churches in terms of their belief in the Eucharist? I didn't think they were that close. And that draws well, the next question is, what's the difference? <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so there are, many, there are many things that we hold in common. Like, you know, for example, we split from the Orthodox Church in 1054. And the split at the time, I think the general consensus was it, it it, it was a, it was lost in trans. It was something that lost in translation. So the churches east and west had grown separate over the centuries um, because of the collapse of the Roman Empire. There was problems between languages because they were in Greek and we were using Latin. Um, then there was kind of there was a dispute over the usage of the filioque clause in the creed. Now, what does that mean? When we say the creed, we say the, um, the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's the line that we use when we say the creed on Sundays. The Orthodox Church say, no, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, full stop. And it was the inclusion of that filioque clause that was one of the triggers for the split for the schism. Uh, because there was a disagreement of what it meant and who had the authority to insert it into a creed and, and all this kind of thing. So that's one. So down through the centuries, there's other things which we have disagreed over. So, for example, um, they view us as being kind of schismatic or heretical, depending on who you're talking to, and can get very upset about it. We didn't exactly make ourselves very popular with the Orthodox Church when the Fourth Crusade sacked Constantinople in the 1200s. Theologically, the differences... uh, celebration of the divine liturgy, so the celebration of mass. They you, we use unleavened bread, the flat host. They use a an ordinary loaf of bread. Um, there is distinctions about um, they have married clergy, um, though not their bishops. There's uh, their approach to divorce is slightly different. They do allow divorce people to remarry in the church, but if there's particular terms and conditions attached. Uh, their understanding of um, original sin uh, is quite different to ours. So we rely on the on the guidance and the teaching of Augustine. Doesn't quite have the same um, in, in, uh, influence in the Eastern Church. There's also differences, primarily differences on their understanding of the papacy and the role of the Pope. It's one of the key cru- crux of the issues between them and the understanding and the role of the papacy and, and how we understand it versus how they understand it. Um, there's also kind of a differences of opinion on the the two Marian dogmas. So that's the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of Our Lady. There are similarities with us and them in terms of the Assumption and the Dormition, but they're not quite the same. 
And the Orthodox disagree with the way that dogmas were proclaimed because it relies on papal infallibility. Um, so that's that's kind of um, that's kind of things that kind of in a nutshell. There's a few other things as well, but they're kind of the key ones. So, so uh, another thing that we just wanted to mention to people was on the seventh of September, there was an unusual joint appeal by Pope Francis, Patriarch Bartholomew. He's the the guy in Istanbul. He's the ecumenical patriarch. And the Archbishop of Canterbury. So effectively, the three spiritual leaders of the majority of Christians on the planet, basically, they came together and they issued an appeal around the climate emergency. And um, it was basically a, 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 an appeal to the delegates of the upcoming climate summit, which is COP26, which is going to be held in Glasgow, to listen to the cry of the earth and make sacrifices to save the planet. It was the first ever joint statement, and um, and it's and they said that the coronavirus pandemic gave political leaders the unprecedented opportunity to rethink the global economy and make it more sustainable and socially just for the poor. We must decide what kind of world we want to live leave to future generations. They said, but they said the threat is no longer far off. And it was interesting. The statement sought to give a sense of urgency to the climate summit, and also it was um, it was issued on September the first, which of course, as we mentioned last week, was the start of the season of creation in the church, which is going on until the fourth of October, uh, drawing people's attention to the climate emergency. Linking in with that um, is an interesting in sick, uh, not encyclical, but pastoral letter, which the Archbishop of Dublin published. Now, people might remember, they might not. Um, Bishop Brendan uh, issued his own pastoral letter on climate um, back, I think it was uh, the Lenten pastoral for 2021. So the new Archbishop of Dublin, Archbishop German Farrell, has issued one as well. And it's, 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 um, it's an interesting one. So it's one, it's just to draw people's, it's called the cry of the earth. And it's faith and science are not opponents. In a truly Christian view, faith and reason go hand in hand. And it's uh, it obviously it speaks to, you know, approaches the climate catastrophe from the perspective of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and very much builds, of course, on the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si. And it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting one. Um, the, the cry of the earth, the cry of the poor is a pastoral letter for the season of creation 2021. Um, now, hard copies are available from Veritas, but it is available as a PDF on the Dublin Archdiocese website. And I would definitely say to people, it's maybe one that they could pick up and have a perusal. And also to, you know, obviously, of course, then to check with Bishop Brendan's own pastoral letter on the climate um, and for the season of creation as well. Then uh, one other thing that caught my eye during the week was uh, that the 7th, so the 7th of, of September, which was Tuesday, was the centenary of the foundation of the Legion of Mary. It was founded on the 7th of September, 1921. Obviously, of course, uh, Frank Duff, and we mentioned him a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about potential new Irish saints. So Frank set up the Legion in Dublin. And of course, it's congratulations to legionaries uh, that would be listening and to those that are involved very much in parish communities. Still alive and well, very much. The Legion is still there and has done Trojan work over its centenary. I hadn't realized Frank was one of the few lay people to attend the Vatican Council. 
and very much stressed the role of the laity in the church. Um, you know, I suppose it's interesting, going back again, Archbishop Dermot Farrell said Mass in Dublin at the Church of St. Nicholas of Myra on Francis Street on the 3rd of September. And his homily obviously was reflecting on the influence of the apostolate, um, you know, particularly, uh, and it, it's, it, you know, Frank saw the need, Frank Duff saw the need, uh, you know, to, to, to offer concrete ways for Catholic lay people to lay, live out the gospel of Jesus, its call and its mission in the contemporary world, supported by prayer, friendship, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, under the patronage and protection of Mary, who, had, who herself had been so open to the message of the angel. And it's, it's you know, it's, 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 it's a nice homily. And also our congratulations to the Legion on their centenary. And, you know, people should look around. It's still there. It's, and, you know, there was an interesting article. Mary Kenny had an interesting article in The Independent. And she was kind of making the point that, you know, sometimes, you know, over the years, legionaries have been seen kind of as holy joes. And it's an unfair characterization about them, you know, very much involved, of course, with prayer and faith and, and that, but also people of great human kindness and over the decades have been involved in helping people in, in great distress. And in particular, I don't know if anyone was watching Reeling in the Years during the year, during the week, one of the things that caught my eye, they were showing people that had taken the boat to England and then the train down to London. And there was a woman uh, with the, the Legion um, stand at the train station to give guidance, you know, for example, for people where they might get accommodation or go look for work or stuff like that. You know, so it's just that's some of the work that they've done over the years. And I, I just think it's it's nice to acknowledge the centenary and to wish them, you know, ad multis annus, you know, that there may, there may be many more years of it. Uh, and to those that are in the Legion, enjoy the celebrations as well. Yeah, I just I, thought it was an important one. I think it. I, I think it important and a shame sometimes that some of the stories we do hear about the Legion come from certain people who might have a bias against them, whereas yes. the work I believe that, and I must read it up again, really, um, that Frank done in terms of helping out prostitutes and helping out those who had babies. I mean, I think one of the reasons was, one of the ideas was that rather than separate the babies and the children from single mothers, that they, they had homes for both of them, whereas the state took the children away from the mothers. Frank didn't. Those sort of ideas seem to be lost out there some, somewhere, you know. So they did do, I agree with, they done some great work. Yeah, exactly. And it's, 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 it's definitely, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, we have had family connections. I know my own, I know certain members of my own family have been involved in the Legion over the years. And I know we still have the Legion in my own parish as well. So I hope they they have some bit of celebration to mark its, its centenary in some way. Now, the other thing I just wanted to draw people's attention to was actually an interview that Pope Francis did recently. Now, yeah. I would safely say that the director of communications at the press office in the Vatican probably gets a coronary every time Pope Francis goes near a microphone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because he's a very difficult man to guide when he's doing formal kind of media encounters. Now, he was interviewed by a guy called Carlos Herrera, which was um, it's a, 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 from a radio. I think it was an a, a, a Argentinian radio station, and the interview was conducted in Spanish. 
But it was an interesting one because um, they talked about various different things. So one was, there was rumors at the time, people might remember a couple of weeks ago, Pope Francis had surgery on his bowel. And he's still recovering. He's quite slow. He hasn't, he's not quite back to full capacity just yet. And um, obviously at the time, there was a whole load of rumors that he was going to step down. So in the interview, he was very blunt. He said, it never even crossed my mind to resign. And I thought that was an interesting one. Um, and obviously he was making the point that uh, there was a nurse um, uh, who said, basically, you have to have the surgery. And basically, you know, explained that he needed to get it done. And that due to him convincing the Pope to have the surgery, that it kind of probably saved his life. Um, you know, so it's, it's an interesting one. Other things that uh, came up is um, the, his trip to Slovakia and to Hungary, which, of course, is his, the 34th trip of his pontificate. Uh, it was an interesting one. The Pope had a, had a diplomatic slip of the tongue because he was asked whether or not he was going to meet the, the prime minister of, the, of, of Hungary. And he said, I'm not too sure. It was like, oh, OK. <laughs> so we'll see how that pans out. Yeah. Uh, then, as well as that, uh, he spoke about um, the situation in Afghanistan, and also, I suppose, you know, his his um, the worries that that whole situation has generated. Um, and then he had an interesting one. Pope Francis always brings up about the devil, actually, and he said it, there was a question about. It's always said that the devil is delighted that people believe he does not exist. Does the devil also run around the Vatican? And the Pope laughing says, the devil runs around everywhere, but I'm most afraid of the polite devil. So it's an interesting, he's an interesting, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, you know, and Pope Francis is, reminds people it's not just a figment of the imagination. It is a presence that's there, um, you know, and they have, you know, we have to be on our guard against them very much so. Um, the then, of course, there's, yeah. Sorry, there was something else within that interview then that, that, that caught my eye too, was that, and you can put some flesh in this, maybe that that before before a conclave, before each conclave, the cardinals meet and talk mm -hmm. about maybe the shape that the church should be taken and the problems, etc., etc., etc. And I think the Pope said within that uh, interview that listen, what I am really doing is just carrying out what we all agreed before the election of me as Pope. Well, there was something like that that he said. Yeah. So. It, it generally it, it, it's accepted. So before before the conclave is held to elect um, to elect the new pope, the cardinals will gather in Rome, and it's all of the cardinals. So it includes the ones that are over eighty and can't go into conclave to vote. And they have what are called the general congregations. And generally, what happens at those is people will present on the state of the church, and there will be reflections and talks and homilies given. So that the cardinals have time to get to know each other, but also to understand what are the pressing issues that are there that the Pope, the new Pope, will have to deal with. And the general consensus is that in the 2013 um, general congregations and in the conclave itself, there was a number of issues brought up, particularly around the management of finances and the reform of finances within the Vatican itself. And also the whole issue of dealing with child sex abuse scandals. So that's kind of, you know, whoever was going to be elected Pope in 2013 
was being given clear instructions by the Cardinal that reform was needed. So that's what Pope Francis is talking about when he's talking about that. Um, it's interesting thing. He also spoke about, of course, that new, um, the, the restrictions of the Tridentine Mass in that interview. He spoke about the synodal patch in Germany and the worries and concerns that that's there, that that presents. Um, then there's also various different things about communication within the church and reforms within the Curia and, and the Vatican. And of course, also uh, the whole thing with, um, he spoke about the legalization of euthanasia in Spain, which was an interesting one, and uh, which has been legalized recently. And then, um, so it was an interesting interview. I would say to people, the full text that's available on vaticannews.va if you want to have a read of it. Uh, it's obviously in English now. The, the actual interview itself was conducted in Spanish, but it's 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 an interesting one that is there. So there were the few bits and pieces, John, just to bring to people's attention this week. Um, as just also to just to note as well that um, during the week there was a document issued uh, about the synod that's starting in in October. So Bishop Brendan mentioned this when he was on, was it last week or the week before? So there's going to be a Vatican Synod on, uh, the Synod of Bishops on synodality. But it's starting at the, the national and the diocesan level this October. And as it happens, the, the General Secretary for the Synod of Bishops in Rome issued preparatory documents, which sets out the guiding principles of Synod on synodality that's due to take place. And it's sends out, it sets out 10 themes that are to be explored um, and which we will be exploring in Ireland in the over the coming months. And it, the interesting thing was it's, they made the point that synods is not just about meetings. It's a way of life, a way of living out our identity as members of the people of God. And it was also interesting as well that the, there was, during the press conference, there was a focus on the, on the synod and one of the things that was pointed out was synods are not parliamentary democracies or something that's decided by majority rule. It's not what synodality means in the context of the church. And I thought that was an interesting point that needs to be kind of, you know, um, referred to again and again, because it just it's it, it's the whole thing about managing expectations um, just an understanding of what the process is. It's not going to be, a, you know, a citizen's assembly. It's not going to be the doll in action. You know, synods within a church context is quite different. Um, you know, it's, it's, and it's, it's an interesting one, you know, that the, the, what it means and what we'll understand it is kind of something that we will learn over the next couple of years. But it's, it, and it's just to make the point, synods have been an ordinary part of the church's life since the early centuries. Um, you know, this is not something new. This is not something novel. We were talking about the Orthodox Church earlier, John. The Orthodox Church are ruled and governed by their synods. Um, you know, that's that's how they work. That's what they do. Um, so it's just, it's an interesting one just for us to rediscover uh, of what it means. And very much it's focusing on a kind of a listening process. Uh, obviously, there was concerns raised about particularly things that have been going on in Germany at the moment, that their synodal path that's ongoing at the moment, and the fact that there are calls for challenging the doctrinal authority within the church. And the officials emphasize that the Pope is the ultimate point of unity and authority in the synodal process. 
And synodality does not mean either a parliamentary process or the introduction of majority view decision-making within the church. Instead, they said, moving the church to a more permanent mindset of synodality would allow the faithful to better exercise the prophetic function of all the people of God, which was articulated by the Second Vatican Council. So that's the few things, John, I wanted to bring to people's attention this week. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, the only thing that really caught my attention there during the week, as well as what you've just said, is a, a, st- a statement coming from the, from the Church of England, from a Church of England bishop, uh, former bishop actually at this stage, and the, the third, which was last Friday, the Right Reverend Jonathan Goodall, the Anglican Bishop of Ebbsfleet, explained that he'd taken a decision after a long period of prayer to enter into full communion with the Catholic Church. Of course, he's not the first uh, bishop to have done this. The the 60-year-old bishop was Bishop of Ebsley since 2013, a a role in which he acted as Provincial Episcopal Vicar, or Flying Bishop, uh, bishop, supporting the Church of England congregation. Flying bishops within the Anglican Church, particularly within within the Church Church of England. So this was a compromise that the Church of England came up with when they decided to allow the ordination of women priests, women bishops, there were certain communities that were not comfortable with that. They didn't want to be ministered to by women bishops. So you had what were called the flying bishops, bishops that went around to service and help and, and, and um, to, to, to give sacraments to those, to, those, to those parishes. So he was one of those, and he's, um, he's after, as they say, crossing the Tiber uh, and is decided to become um, uh, a Catholic. It'll be interesting to see whether or not he joins the the ordinature of Our Lady of Walsingham, which is Anglican community within the Catholic Church in England, or um, what way he's going to work that. It'll be interesting to see what happens. John, just a a nice one to finish things off, actually. So last one was a headline that caught my eye. Pope Francis sends 15,000 ice creams to the prisoners of Rome. That's a nice one. (laughs) Yeah, it's... um, so he sent, he sent 15,000 ice creams to prisoners in Rome as the Eternal City sweltered in the summer heat. And that was during the week just gone. The gelati were taken to the Regina Celi and the Rabibia prisons by the papal almoner, um, Conrad Fawinski, I think is how you pronounce the man's name. And the, 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 the almoner, this is the department that performs charitable acts on behalf of Pope. And it's um, it's an interesting one because they describe it as being a corporate works of mercy, which of course is to visit the imprisoned, and also just to 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 I suppose just to remind them and to remind ourselves that they, while they are prison, as 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 Sister Imelda reminded us a couple of weeks ago, you know there's still some mother's son, some mother's child, yeah, um, someone's brother, someone's sister. They haven't lost their humanity even though they are in prison. Lovely touch. Lovely touch. It is only take Francis to do it. Well done, Shane. Thanks a lot for bringing that to our attention. So now we go out for our second piece of music, I suppose. At this stage, uh, it's one by Seed's Family Worship, and this one is entitled Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And this is uh, from Psalm 139. So join again in part two. Excuse me, join us again in part three, where we read and reflect on the Word of God. My in 
inward parts You knitted me Together in my mother's womb I praise you for I am Fearfully and wonderfully made I praise you for I am Fearfully and wonderfully made So welcome back again to the third part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane, Shane Ambrose. This part of the program is we read and reflect on the Word of God. Before that, we always invite Shane to pray this prayer for reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your Word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this Word reverently, attentively, and humbly. May we not despise this Word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. 
May our hearts be open to it, that not our eyes be closed, nor our minds wander, but may we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for that, Shane. So, the Gospel for today is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27 to 35. Jesus and his disciples left for the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he put this question to his disciples. Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah. Others again, one of the prophets. But you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter spoke up and said to him, you're the Christ. And he gave them strict instructions not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man was destined to suffer grievously, to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be put to death, and after three days to rise again. And he said all this quite openly. Then taking him aside, Peter started to remonstrate with him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, because the way you think is not God's way, but man's. And he called the people and his disciples to him and said, If anyone wants to be a follower of mine, let him renounce himself and take up his cross and follow me. For anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake, and for the sake of the gospel, will save it. That's the gospel for this week from the Gospel of Mark. Shane, you might share a thought with us, please. Yeah, so it's it's um, it's an interesting one this week. Uh, there's a couple of things... Um, there's a couple of points, I suppose, that we can look at. It's generally seen as, you know, the role of this profession of Peter in the Synoptic Gospels is a subject which is given a lot of consideration and examination and reflection on it, you know. And many scholars find this point at Mark in chapter 8 as kind of the, 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 the kind of a huge dividing point in the Gospel of Mark. Um, is in the first half of his gospel, Mark shows Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in deeds and words and parables and showing that the disciples kind of fail to understand what's happening. And fail. In the second half of his gospel, Mark continues to unfold the true nature of the good news and points more and more to Jesus's role as the necessary element in that good news. And this is kind of the bridging point um, where Peter has this uh, kind of moment of epiphany, if you like. And Peter's profession is kind of seen as three pillars within um, the gospel, which identifies the, the role of Christ's death and resurrection. And, you know, revolving around our understanding of who, who Jesus is. Excuse me. And it's, there's a couple of things there, I suppose, for us to pause and reflect on as we look at it this Sunday. And I suppose the first thing is that question, who do people say I am? That's Jesus' question to disciples. And very much it is a question which comes down to us to today. Who do we say Jesus is? It's very much a personal answer. It's very much a question each of us has to reflect on and come to an answer about. Um, and how we come to that answer will, will vary hugely. It's an interesting one, actually, because there's uh, a lot of online debate at the moment about uh, kind of understanding of this and 
um, uh, the, the, the conversations that are going on. And if people are interested in, there's a guy called Jordan Peterson who deals, who's, he's not a Christian and he, he brings a, he's a professor, a Canadian professor of psychology, can create a lot of controversy, but brings an interesting take to the understanding of the role of scripture and, and, and so on and so forth. So if people are interested in that, they should check him out via Word on Fire. But Robert, Bishop Warren Barron, Robert Barron has engaged with him a number of times. But he looks at this particular area in terms of who is Jesus. But for us, bring it back to the Sunday Gospel this week. We're asked, who is Jesus? And that's a question that each of us has to reflect on, each of us has to pause on, and ultimately make a decision about. And ultimately, that's fundamentally what it means to be Christian is to define ourselves in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there might be a small bit of, um, you know, this whole, um, the, the, there might be a small bit of cynicism about the tradition in certain evangelical Protestant um, traditions about, you know, the, the altar call where they have this call to Jesus and they profess Jesus as their Lord. And, but the point is, that's what all Christians are asked to do. That's what we're all called to do, because we're asked to, I suppose, to imitate Peter in, in, in terms of the declaration of faith. Now, for me, the thing about this Sunday's Gospel is Peter and Peter's role in it. And it's, you know, poor old Peter, here we go again. You know, he only opens his, he only opens his mouth to exchange feet, you know, that kind of a way. <laughs> You know, so he starts off wonderful. He says, who do people say I am? And Peter Spike speaks up and says to him, you are the Christ. And he gave him strict orders not to tell anyone about it. Now, there's two things there. So you have Peter's declaration of faith. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, we obviously hear that and Jesus' reply, which is, you know, Peter, you are, you know, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that's in the Gospel of Matthew. In, in, in Mark's account, this is just, you know, we have the profession and Jesus said, Peter says, you are the Christ. And then uh, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Now, that's a bit unusual, I suppose you could say, but it's what's called the Messianic secret. And in the Gospel of Mark, he, te- he basically instructs the disciples not to tell anyone until such time as he tells them to. So it's just something to be aware of. But so we have this whole declaration by Peter, you are the Christ. And, you know, Again, Peter shows his leadership qualities. Um, you know, you know, he's and it's an interesting one. Peter is the first human being to recognize or to at least acknowledge openly that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the expected deliverer. Um, you know, so it's it's something that we just we just should be conscious of and why it's so important. And then, of course, two lines later, we've got the reverse when Jesus is telling people. This is what it means to be the Messiah, that is, they will suffer and die and rise on the third day. And of course, this does not fit with what they understand the Christ, the Messiah, to be or to mean. You know, they understand this in political terms, the restoration of the kingdom, whereas Jesus is showing, setting out to show them that leadership, and truly Christian leadership, is to be servant leadership to others. And we have that line, you know, get behind me, Satan. Uh, addressed to Peter after he says to him, no, you can't do this, Lord, you know. Uh, but the reason being, the way that you think is not God's way, but man's. You know, so it's it's it also comes around to that whole thing that, you know, our initial, our, our human instinct is to reject suffering as far as possible. 
you know, and so it's Peter's having difficulty accepting the idea of the Messiah having to suffer. And it's, it's you know, it's completely human, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I suppose, the question is that suffering and why God allows us as, you know, is one of those things which has caused intense reflection down through the millennia, you know, and, um, you know, but, and Jesus is very much saying that, are presenting here that the carrying of the cross or whatever we're dealt with in life is central to true discipleship. But it doesn't mean you've got to be a, a, a sadomasochist in terms of what's inflicted on you. But it's just something for us to ponder on, to think about, you know, how does our faith cope with the reality of a cross that we're being asked to carry in life? Um, you, know, uh, you know, so it's just something to, to think about and to reflect on. Um, and the reminder to us that, you know, when we are answering the question, who do you say I am about Jesus? We cannot ignore the fact that he is the suffering Christ. Um, and it was an interesting one that, you know, for, for, many, for, for many years, you, you know, when, you, when you saw the image of Christ crucified, particularly in the early catacombs, Christ was Christ triumphant, Christ resurrected. But it was only as we have moved out particularly in the Middle Ages, that the recognition of Christ as the suffering Christ on the cross uh, came into center play in terms of the, not the decoration, but yes, the decoration of our churches, the presentation of the cross in churches and so on and so forth. And it's an important reminder to us, you know, that it's, it's the message of suffering and its place in the message of Jesus and in God's plan is centered on that figure of that good man, the best of all people, on the cross on the hill of Calvary. And it's something that we need to reflect on, something we need to pray about. Um, and it's it's very much something that's very countercultural, you know, in, in, in the modern world in particular. What I would say to people, if you wanted to read something about it, um, there is a there is a, a German theologian, and his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now he's an interesting guy. Um, he died in nineteen, I think it was nineteen forty four. He was a German Lutheran pastor and theologian, and he was a renowned anti Nazi dissident. And he died in nineteen forty five. Actually, sorry, April nineteen forty five. He was executed in one of the concentration camps. But it's an interesting one that, you know, he has written a number of books and um, which are still, um, you know, read across the ecumenical space. And um, it's, it's, it's one that it's, it, there's one that I'm just trying to find the name of the John. Just give me one second. The Cost of Discipleship. It was published in 1948. It's still in print. Uh, I actually have a copy of it myself. It's not the easiest read in the world. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's one that challenges us because, you know, he makes, he, he reminds us that grace, you know, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate, and it's you know it's it's an interesting one. It's a challenging book, um, you know, but it's an interesting one for people to read. It. Potentially, maybe you could look at it over the next couple of weeks or months, whichever the case might be. But ultimately, coming back to this Sunday's gospel, the question is, 
who do you say I am? And I think that in itself will give us plenty of food for thought in the week to come. Shane, thank you very much, Neil, for that, for that reflection. A few thoughts, a few thoughts that come to my own mind uh, today when I was reflecting on the Sunday Gospel. Again, as Shane pointed out there, who do people say I am? That's what Jesus says. So who do I, John, say Jesus is? Deep down, who do I say really? Not quoting from the teaching of the church, but who do I, John Keeley, say in the depths of my own heart? This man whom I, I read about each week in the scriptures and whether it be a mass of my own meditation, this man who people have believed for over 2,000 years, who is he for me? The thought that comes to my mind to start with an important fact is that Jesus, I believe, is that he, he's the Son of God. He was born for us and in communication with and prayer with his Father on a continual basis. I read about that he is the Son of God. And so the first point that I bring up for myself this week, a state, is that yeah, I say Jesus is the Son of God. Who is he for me? The next, I suppose, important point that came to my mind is that he died for me on the cross personally. Jesus, as Shane just outlined there, I have to forget this. I have to forget that Jesus died on the cross for me. But thank God I'm reminded by the readings in Scripture and listening to other people's temp- uh, testimonies, that we often fail to understand that Jesus does not know us. Per- uh, that Jesus does know us personally. We're told, as I said earlier on, that Himself and His Father, Jesus and His Father, are continually in communication with each other. And we read in the Scripture when He says that every hair on our head has been counted, and the Father knows that. So, for me, each week. I need to, as I read in the scripture, be conscious of the fact that Jesus knows me personally and has got something to say to me each week that I hear the Sunday Gospel being mentioned. But the third and last thing that came to mind today was I I believe that Jesus is truth. In today's society, as values taught by the the, the values taught by Jesus are often ignored. And some say, I don't believe in that stuff like I want to get a life. I want to do what I like. Uh, and people say, you don't have to believe something that will happen to you if you don't do this or that or the other. And the only thing that came to my mind side of way was remember what happened to Eve in the garden. So I believe that there is a life after, uh, after this life on earth and that it's not automatic that I'll enjoy eternal life uh, forever and ever in heaven. But I do believe that I must follow as best I can the teachings of Jesus. Jesus died and suffered that for me so that when I fall I have a chance to recognise that I've fallen and become reconciled again with Jesus through his dying on the cross so the final thing that I say there is that I say that Jesus is my saviour so I believe in I believe Jesus is the son of God I believe he's my saviour and I also believe that he knows me personally that's about my own little few thoughts there. Ramble is what they are, but they come to my mind as I was reflecting on the gospel this week. And I suppose often we, we, all, we often need to uh, to remember and thank God for all the all the work that the Holy Spirit does in terms of helping us to understand who Jesus is. So, okay, so we'll come to the end of our program for today. Thanks a lot, Shane, for for sharing those thoughts with us on what's happening around the Catholic world. I suppose in in part two of the program. We'll go out with our final piece of music, and this one is by Chris Tomlin, and this one is entitled, Who 
you are for me. So let's listen to Chris and please uh, enjoy the week. Come back and join us again in, in uh, next week. We'll try and do it all again. So for myself and Shane, God bless now. Enjoy the week. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.